How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am delighted to be chatting with Delia Efron about Left on Tenth. Delia is a best-selling author, screenwriter, essayist, and playwright. Her novels include the New York Times bestseller Syracuse and The Lion is In. She has written books of essays, books of humor, and books for children and young adults. Her movie credits include You've Got Mail, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, This Is My Life, Michael, and Hanging Up, based on her novel. Her play, Love, Loss, and What I Wore, written with her sister Nora Ephron, ran for two years off-Broadway and has been performed internationally. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Delia. How are you today? I'm just fine. It's spring in New York, so I couldn't be happier. I was just up there and everything was blooming and it just looked beautiful and starting to warm up a little bit. A very nice place to be right now. Yes, my pub date was yesterday and it hit the 70s for the first time and you know, we ate out and it was just so fabulous. And I hope you had a wonderful pub date. I did actually. I had a very nice pub date with many flowers from my wonderful friends. 
Well, I just loved your book and I can't wait to talk about it. But before we do that, will you give me a quick synopsis of Left on 10th for those that won't have read it yet? Oh, Left on 10th is my way home. And I was left on 10th when my husband died. And after that, life took many left turns, some perilous, some wondrous. And this book is about four years of my life and about events which were in some ways so remarkable and both extraordinary and life-threatening and just an amazing four years of my life. Was it hard getting all of this very personal information and details down on the page for you? Well, I always have written personally, and I have written a couple of books personally before this, as well as essays in the New York Times, which were based on personal experiences. So I I have a voice as a writer, which is actually just my voice, and I'm used to that. But in this case, I mean, let me just say, I mean, this book is about losing my husband of 32 years, going through that extraordinary loss, as well as losing my sister three years before that. And then a year later, when my <laughs> when my internet crashed, because I was trying to disconnect my late husband's phone, I uh, wrote a piece about my absolutely terrible fight with my phone company. And I heard from a man who was a psychiatrist in the Bay Area that I had had three or two, we're still not agreed about this, dates with each other 54 years ago. So we started to correspond. I did not remember him, but he, we had been fixed up by my sister, Nora. So he came blessed by my sister and the confluences and synchronicities were very eerie. I, I had just been invited to speak at a conference in Houston, a conference of Jungians. And I had said to myself, what's a Jungian? I better meet one and find out. And then I got this letter from Peter and it's, I'm a Jungian analyst. I got it about a month later or two months later. And, and I thought, this is very strange. And the last trip he and his late wife had taken was to Syracuse, which is a falling down but very lovely place in Sicily. And that is the title of my last book. It takes place there. So there were these strange, you know, I don't know, meant to be's about it. I mean, Peter calls it Bashir, which is a Yiddish word meaning soulmate, destiny. And we began to correspond and, and we fell madly in love. And then four months later, in the height of this very magical moment, I was um, we were both 72 years old, I should mention that. And um, I got diagnosed with AML, which is a fierce leukemia. And the second half of the book is about my survival. I had a cutting edge treatment and uh, a newly invented way of doing a bone marrow transplant and somehow got through it. And here I am to write that book. Well, I loved all of the connections that you and Peter had. It was kismet, it seemed like. First of all, I loved the Verizon story and all the responses you had to it. I thought that was very entertaining. I'm sure it was not entertaining for you at the time. But the <laughs> fact that <laughs> you heard from so many different people, some more stalkerish than others, but that it also connected you with Peter. But the Young Center here in Houston is the whole reason you and I are connected, because I have a friend, Andrea Frankfurt, who works for them. 
And so when you were coming to Houston or you were doing your event for the Young Center here in Houston, they sponsored the podcast for a while and then they connected me up with you so that we could do this interview. So I loved reading all about that. And then the fact that he was also connected to the Young Institute. So I thought all that was just really cool. It is. I mean, there it was wonderful. And, and when I did, you know, the first year I had to I had to cancel my speech, of course. And then I got to do it this year, all healthy and well. And Peter advised me. So it was just right for for that particular audience. And, and it was just marvelous. I loved everybody. They were so nice. And they loved you. It was so well received. I enjoyed watching it as well. But I want to talk further about your treatment and how brutal all of that was. But I wanted to ask a few other questions first, if that works for you. Sure. So I love the format. How did you decide on that, doing it in parts? Oh, the first of all, when I survived, which, I mean, it was very brutal. So I really had no idea I would. I didn't think I would ever write again. And I, I mean, I was just so debilitated mentally and physically. I couldn't actually walk. I had to, I was in a wheelchair. I had to relearn everything. I had to come back into the world. And after a couple of years when it was clear that it had worked, which was such a miracle, my writer's heart started beating again. And I looked and I thought, this is, life just handed me the most extraordinary, well, it's a love story. And I knew that. And so I began to think, well, I I have to write this. And it immediately broke in. It was a book that just practically presented itself to me. It broke immediately into different sections because there was, of course, the part of being widowed. Then there was falling in love. And then there was the illness. And and there within that, there were a few other sections that I created. But that was it. Generally, I just saw it. But I had to, I did not remember an enormous amount of what was going on. I was in the hospital 100 days, so, and so sick that there are gaps in my memory. So researching the book was kind of a treasure hunt. I began to interview all my friends. I began, I, I looked at all the emails that Peter wrote to all my friends when I was sick in the hospital and he was there every minute. And the book began to come into shape by all these things I learned that were, there were so many, there was a, this, I mean, that's the thing. Okay. It was probably the most terrifying and, and brutal and life-threatening. It was everything. And then yet when I was able to write it and ask people about it, it became a story. How can I tell my story? And so I, I got to take that trauma and kind of turn it into a book. And that was such a great, great journey. And probably a little cathartic. Very cathartic. And, and I believe, I think anyone who's had a bone marrow stem cell transplant, which is quite brutal. I mean, I, what I start with type O blood and in the end I ended up with type A blood. I mean, it, it's a, Peter thinks it's a, it's a, it's as basic a transformation. I mean, your bone marrow produces your blood supply and they alter it. So it is, it is just as extreme as it could be. Well, and I liked that you looked back on everything that had been written, such as Peter's emails and other correspondence, and then sort of did it chronologically. And I thought that worked really well for your story. Well, I, I had made a lot of notes after my husband, Jerry, died. 
And I had written even a piece about the last night of his life because it had been such a traumatic night and I'd never published it. So there was this thing that I could, I began, I had the beginning of my book already written. Then I said to my, uh, I have, I know a young filmmaker who uh, is marvelous. And I asked her to go through my computer and print out every email and everything that I had written during those years from the time Jerry died to the time I survived. And she printed everything out and put it in chronological order and put it into six giant loose leaf binders. And I wrote the book off that. And I got to see, you know, the amazing emails Peter wrote my friends when I was sick. I got to, and then, and then the interviews that I did. I mean, I had this one interview. I, the day that I got information that my uh, leukemia was back, that I was out of remission, I was really in shock. And I was told I had to have a, the only thing that really could save my life if it worked was a, was a stem cell transplant. And I came to my apartment building and I, there's a woman who lives here or she's moved out now, but I love her so much. She was a, a therapist. And I, I saw her in the lobby and I said, you have to come to my apartment right now. You have to come. I mean, we were not close friends. She was like roped in by a, by a crazed <laughs> leukemia diagnosed person and, and dragged upstairs. And, and she, and when I talked to her about it, she said that my terror was so severe that she felt sucked into it. And it was so strange, you know, from the point of view of then being well to hear that. And then also I asked her if she would go on this journey with me and my God, the poor woman, could she say, no, she would never would. I knew she had the biggest heart and, and I took advantage of it. But when we walked to the elevator, she told me that I said to her, when she stepped into the elevator, it's very important that you love me. Now, I could not believe I said that. <laughs> I laughed when I read that. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it, you know, so that there were these moments researching the book where I said, I said to Gail, I, I did not say that. She said, yes, you did. <laughs> and she said, she said, well, that's fine, Delia, because I do love you. You know, oh, it's so sweet. So that the, I found out things that made the book richer. I definitely liked that story. And I also thought it was just fascinating that you had no memory of certain times, like when you were very sick in the hospital and they were taking you to run a test and you got so upset about the test that you wouldn't sit still and you were cursing. And it must be so crazy to not remember those things and then have people telling them to you like an out-of-body experience almost. It was really strange when Meredith, Meredith was in the hospital that day with me, one of my very good friends. And she said, you know, you were in the ICU. For six days, by the way. And I said, I was what? I literally thought I was present all the time, but I guess I absolutely wasn't. And I had no memory of it. And then Meredith and, and Linda both started regaling me with my behavior, which was that, you know, I've been swearing at everyone. And <laughs> I, I was so shocked. I mean, part of, they felt, part of me was kind of excited by it, you know, because you're such a, well, I mean, when you're in a hospital, it's not a prison, but you don't have a lot of choice about what happens every day. You know, you were the center of attention, but you're powerless. And I sort of liked hearing that I had acted out. But Peter, who is a doctor, said to me, well, you know, it was probably steroid overload that made you do that. But Meredith, of course, thought it was my inner voice. <laughs> 
And so I still have no memory of the ICU. I mean, to my conscious mind, I've never actually seen an ICU. But I did that. And 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 then Meredith told me this amazing thing about Peter, because I went a little crazy in the MRI and uh, ripping, actually ripping my clothes off. And Peter came in. They couldn't they couldn't complete it. So Peter came in and he just covered me with a blanket. And he said to them, we're done here. And he just just wheeled me out of there. And so that there were these unbelievably tender moments that I learned writing the book. And they they were really fabulous and profound. And, you know, they really, if my love could be any deeper for Peter, I don't know how it could be, but these things did deepen it even. Yes, Peter sounds like quite a gem. And I was so glad you had him as you were going through all of that. Well, I think if you're going through, I look, so many of us are going to go through this one way or another, either with a mate or with ourselves. It's cancer is an equal opportunity disease, and it, it, it is very, very, prevalent. So, you know, when you have to go through some sort of a journey like this, you find out about yourself. I mean, I understood that I'd been great, great, not just good, but great at friendship. I had the greatest friends and I knew which ones would be the best who would, could be with me. You, I can't, you cannot, well, you cannot take a lot of people on a trip that was as this, you know, grueling and life-threatening. It's not a party. So uh, there were just a few people that that were there with me all the time, but they were very fantastic. They they understood how to be with me. So I think, you know, I mean, I don't have a lot of advice about stuff like this, but I do know that you have to be very careful about who comes with you on the journey, that love can be as powerful as medicine. I mean, Peter did not leave my side and I know Waking up every morning and seeing him across the way in the room was was pretty fantastic. You know, if you have a stem cell transplant, everyone has a private room because you're so your immune system is completely flattened. So everyone who comes into the room wears a mask and is distant. But Peter was able to stay with me all the time. And that that was very, very, very helpful. I also know this, that whoever you are as a person, you will be when you're sick. I mean. If you like to Google everything in the world, if that's if you're a researcher and you like to you feel more secure if you know everything, then you will do that. But if you're like me and you don't want to know everything, then you should tell your doctors, don't tell me everything. I don't want to know my counts every day. I don't want to know my odds every minute. I don't want to know my odds at all, really. And don't tell me the details. I mean, my my vocabulary of of leukemia is very limited. And I was very clear with them about what I wanted because that's who I was. My ability to spin something bigger, to panic and mishear is really big. I am really talented at that. <laughs> and I knew I needed to absolutely, you know, shut that down as much as possible. That's smart that you approached it that way because I'm the same way, but I think in terms of being able to spin any small thing into a major calamity, but I want to know everything. So then I have to get out there and research it all. So then I'm always thinking, oh, I have this or someone else has that. And it's better to be not in the know like you were. Well, it isn't really. (laughs) It's only good if that's who you are. You know what I mean? If you're, if, if, if emotionally, because I know I have friends and, and, and my sister was more like this. I mean, my sister, Nora, who 
I mean, she began as a, her life as a journalist, and journalists like to collect information and make sense of it. But I'm not a journalist. I mean, my book is absolutely accurate and true, and and I did research everything carefully once I had gotten well. But I'm not someone who goes who who it, who is a journalist. That's not what I am. So, you know, it's different for everybody. Absolutely. And you mentioned your doctors, and most of them sounded wonderful, but you had one doctor in particular who wasn't, who didn't have a good bedside manner and who was so unpleasant. And I always find that really frustrating. My dad is ill, and I take him to doctors regularly, and most of his are wonderful, but there's one who just has no bedside manner, has no Mm -hmm. way of understanding what's happening and communicating the information. And that always just is so upsetting to me. I'm thinking, I think you're in the wrong profession, or maybe you need to be on the non-patient side of it, you know? You bet. They should all be moved into test tubes. They <laughs> exactly. really, you know, which is which is an odd thing to say, because actually I've become just a teeny bit friendly with the with one of the men who invented the one of the drugs that really did save me, CPX351, which is now, now that it's out of trials, it's called Vixios. And and this guy is the nicest man, and he is such a doll. And he has all the he has these dogs, and he's he's so charming. And you know, so people in test tubes, sometimes they're just they're great people. But these doctors that are dealing with patients who have no empathy, they really shouldn't be in their jobs. Uh, they they do damage. And what this doctor did with me. Um, and by the way, you're assuming it's a male, and uh, I did not put the sex of this doctor in. I just want to say that uh, the book, it could be, it could not be. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Everybody always assumes it is a male, and it could be one, but it could also not be. So this particular doctor did this thing that my friend John calls casting crepe, which is crepe is a fabric that like widows had to wear when people had rules about grieving and they had right. to wear it for years. And what it is, is if a doctor comes in the room and, you know, forecasts a bad outcome. And this doctor came in and said to me, you could be allergic to uh, CPX. You could be immune, not allergic. You could be immune now because I had had CPX twice before and they were giving it to me to clean out my marrow so I could have a bone marrow transplant. And if they couldn't clean my marrow out, I would not be allowed to have it. So everything was riding on whether I I would get a clean marrow. So this doctor came in and told me that, and I just flipped. I went so panicked. I, I It hadn't crossed my mind I could be immune to it. I'd only been having the most friendly thoughts toward this drug. And I really, I mean, the thing about this is I started to hate this doctor. I mean, of course, because you're, if you get cancer, you're not exactly in a good mood. You are angry that it's happened to you. And there was this doctor, I just, all my rage just went right on to this doctor. I don't blame you at all because it's my dad's Parkinson's doctor that is the one that just is so neutral about everything and just says all of this information, a lot of it not positive. And you're like, I think you could really tell us that in a much friendlier way that's not going to send my poor dad over the edge. So it is a shame sometimes that these people aren't working with test tubes. Though, as you said, I'm sure many friendly people are working with test tubes, but some of these people who don't have bedside manners really should be doing something else. Yes, they should. And my husband, my my late husband, Jerry, when we 
we went to a, uh, he died of prostate cancer. And I remember when it came back and we, we went to the doctor and, and he was put on a med and it, it went back into remission and we were very excited. And he said, nothing I haven't seen before. And I thought, Uh-oh. what, yeah. why can't you just say how wonderful, what is wrong with you? You know? Anyway, I, I'm part of a project called the Empathy Project, which is a collaboration of doctors and filmmakers to create films to teach empathy to doctors. And we just did a film on um, implicit bias. We interviewed a lot of Black women who have been patients and tried to do a film that reflected their experiences. So this is something I really believe in developing empathy in doctors, but Honestly, I'm I'm not sure you can teach it, even though these these films we're using is for medical students. I mean, could this could your doctor, your father's doctor, could he ever be nicer? But I'll tell you one thing, working with doctors, which is what I've been doing, makes you a lot more forthright in a in a you know, when you go in to see the doctor. And ask a lot more questions. And I know you talked a little bit about that in the hospital. Tell them, yeah, yeah just tell them, you know, that they're, well, in, in the case of this particular doctor, I, I emailed my beloved main doctor and said, this doctor was a problem. And I think my main doctor said something. Took care of it. Oh, not really. She. Oh, no. My main doctor, Dr. Gail Robos, she did do something, but. It did not really work tremendously well. Anyway, that I mean, it's it's hard. It's hard because your dad he's so upset, isn't he? I mean, Parkinson's is is it's rough. My one of my best friends died of Parkinson's recently, and and you talked about that in the book, and I was definitely yeah. empathizing there. And he has my dad has Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, so really trying mm. to explain some of these things, he's highly anxious. So I, I loved when I read about your empathy project and I thought if it wasn't rude, I would send all of those links to the doctor, but I'm afraid that might just create a bigger problem. But I wish I could just <laughs> recommend it to the group generally. Can you change? Can you just change his doctor? Well, that's the only real expert they have right now on Parkinson's, but that's a thought. I think they're, you know, with all of this crazy COVID stuff, everybody's understaffed. But speaking of COVID, I was also thinking about you as I was reading your book, because you go through all of this and you have to worry so much about who you're around. And I'm sure you were wearing masks and then you're better. And then stupid COVID hits. That had to just be terrible timing for you. It was really crazy because two years post-transplant, when I went in for my checkup and feeling really, you know, back to myself. My doctor said, you know, you're no more likely to get it now than I am. And I have never had it. And I practically danced out of there. And that was February 2020. And in March 2021, the world shut down from COVID. But I have to say, I was so happy to be alive. I really was. And also, I was I was back to writing. And so I thought, I can write this now. So that's when I asked my young filmmaker friend, Julia Bayless, I asked her to collect everything. And I sent for my hospital records, the 6,000 pages in-house hospital records. Wow. And I know they they came right on the internet. It was quite easy. I never got through all of them. It was quite, (laughs) I got through about 4,020. And then, and I started to write and we left New York because it was getting a little bit scarier here. So we we went out to 
California to my brother-in-law's a nice house there. And he was there and we, the three of us uh, shared the house for, for those months and, and we're in complete isolation, but I was writing my book and I, I, you know, writers like to be alone. I mean, they're, they're that's something they're good at. And I really miss my friends. I, I, I think that the, the worst part of this COVID has been these periods when we haven't been able to be with friends. It's just been brutal. But I, I did have this book to write. And it was when I was writing it, I was very happy, even though it's so intense, the book. And but it's funny, too. It's really funny also. It is both, but definitely, especially in the sections where you're going through all your treatments, it's pretty intense. And I was just so happy to know that you were okay, you know, that you were able to make it through and write the book. So that that was helpful in terms of knowing that it was all going to be okay in the end, because I was like, oh my gosh, poor Delia. I know my doctor said she started to get nervous in the middle that I wasn't going to make it. And she knew why I had made it. <laughs> I know that's that that's the dramatist in me. You know, I'm good at that. That's something I know how to do because I'm a screenwriter and I'm novelist. So creating drama is is I mean, the one of the wonderful things about being able to turn this into something was just to take my skills and and make something out of it. Yes, but you were quite good at building the suspense. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So let's talk about the title a little bit. I understand where it comes from, but how did you decide for it to be the title for your memoir? I'd been walking around with that title for years. I grew up in a family, all right, of writers, and all four of my sisters are writers. And at the dinner table, we would always like, every time I said something funny, my dad would say, that's a great line, write it down. We were trained to be writers, really. It was kind of incredible, but he would also say to me, that's a great title, write it down. And this was like when I was like nine or 10 years old. So I had this, I, I had titles for things with, that had that were meaningless. I mean, they didn't go with anything, right? And I had that title left on 10th banging in my head for at least 10 years. And then it suddenly became the title of this book. Isn't that odd? No, I've heard other writers say that too, that they either create lists of titles or they have a particular title like you're describing. And it just took the time for life to happen to you. And then you had the perfect book to go with your title. Right. And I do, by the way, I do love where I live. I mean, I feel that 10th Street, I think when we are in life, we find, I think it's one of our journeys in life is to find the place where we feel most happy. And I mean, I think for Peter, my husband, when he went to the Southwest and he went to Grand Canyon and and Mo, uh, what's that place? Arches National Park near Moab, Utah. And he suddenly understood that that was his, that's where his soul was. And for me, it's, it's, it's the village, it's 10th Street. So uh, 10th Street has a lot of power to me. It's, it's not just a, a street. It's, it's my, it's my true home. I love that. We go to Colorado every summer to the Rocky Mountains. And I feel like that's my true home. When I'm there just sitting amongst the mountains, I just feel so peaceful and I just love it. I feel like I'm home. Yes, I I, I know what you mean. We're thinking of going to the um, Aspen Health Conference. Peter is so excited because we'll fly to Denver and we'll drive through Colorado, which he's loves so much. So I know, boy, that is a gorgeous state, isn't it? It really is. I've absolutely loved speaking with you, Delia. And before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked or what's sitting on your nightstand either way. 
oh, what is sitting on my nightstand? Well, today a woman went mad in the supermarket. It's a collection of short stories that I absolutely love. I'm reading Danny Pellegrino's book. How do I unremember this? Unfortunate true stories. Yes. How do I? Yeah. Danny Pellegrino. How do I unremember this? It's very funny. It's a very funny memoir and it's, it's very moving too. Okay, good. I'm going to add that one to my list. I'm not familiar with it. What else am I reading? Well, I read more than one thing at once. I have to confess. I do too. Um, And yeah, but I was actually rereading Hilma Woolitzer's book because She's so smart about how she writes, and I feel like I I can learn from her in addition to loving her stories. Well, thank you for joining me today, Delia, on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Well, I did too, Cindy. It was just been great. Thank you. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.